Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. You invited me back. Thank you. <laughs> um, especially uh, a privilege to be here on this Sunday uh, with uh, those beautiful baptisms and professions of faith of these young men. Uh, that was a privilege uh, for me to hear because I'm going to be speaking a little bit about what you've just committed yourself to and what all of you in your baptism have committed yourself to. Uh, and that's the fact that you have a new identity in Jesus Christ. And that uh, comes to us, uh, I think, very powerfully when we think about the issue of shame. So my text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let me read it for you. We are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we think about this, normally on this passage, everybody reads over despising the shame. <laughs> if you think about that this morning, let's pray. Lord, would you uh, fill our hearts uh, with the hope that is ours? Would you uh, enlighten and encourage us uh, as we think about what it is that you have accomplished for us, your people? Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, Lord, be pleasing to you, acceptable to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. When I left uh, seminary quite a few years ago now, uh, to go plant a church in Tucson, Arizona, uh, I, I was ignorant as a fence post about what that entailed. Uh, and so it isn't surprising at all uh, that uh, five years later, uh, we shut that church down, uh, thinking that we had failed. Uh, I, uh, I the churches I had known uh, during uh, that period of my life, a University Presbyterian Church, had six pastors while I was in college at New Mexico State. And they were still trying to figure out what a church was. Uh, and then I, I went off uh, to seminary. They didn't teach us what, uh, how to plan a church. And there weren't any assessment centers around at that time. There weren't any training, special trainings for planting churches. Uh, and... Uh, I, I was at sea. I, I was completely lost in what it was I was supposed to do. But in that moment of failure, I realized that in the arrogance of my ignorance, I was guilty. The blame fell on me. I, I, I had driven people away uh, thinking they didn't really belong in this group and so on. But it wasn't the guilt that really crushed me. I knew that God could forgive me and would forgive me in Christ. I knew that with better practices and so forth, uh, I, uh, I, I could do better. It was the shame. It was the shame that crushed me. It was like a wet, stinky blanket. You are not a church planter. This, the president of my seminary wrote me a letter and said, you're not worthy for more, a better uh, and, and more training because obviously you aren't called to the ministry. No one called me. No one asked me what happened. No one came alongside of me to say, hey, 
It's okay, you know. Uh, strike one. <laughs> no, no, that didn't happen. And that shame that I was of no value to the church of Jesus Christ shattered me. It shattered who I thought I was. But then an amazing thing happened. I called my father here in the Messiah Valley and on the farm, and I told him I was coming home, and I thought he would be elated. He never wanted me to go into the ministry. He would have probably, I would have thought he would have said, see, I told you all along, you're, you're not a minister. But that's not what he said. He said, son, God called you into this work. There are lessons that you need to learn, and you need to go and learn them. That was an amazing moment. It was the first time my father had acknowledged my calling. It was the first time my father had honored me in my choice. And then my, a couple of my friends from seminary called me up and they said, we've got a group of people up here in Seattle and they want to start a church and we want you to come and do it. My brothers believed in me. They had faith in me. And they asked me to come and plant another church. And I did go uh, with my family and Susan and the kids and we took off for Seattle and we did plant that church and it's still there uh, to this day. And you know the interesting thing about that group in Tucson? They uh, hung together and they joined with another group and today they formed a church, Christ formed a church and it's called Desert Springs PCA Church in Tucson, Arizona. Shame is uh, ubiquitous uh, in our church, churches, and in our society. Uh, it's an epidemic of shattered identity. And I want to explore the reasons for that with you for a few moments. And then I want to give you a working definition of shame. And then I want to tell you how to deal with it. Because shame is a debilitating emotion. And if you think about it, that's where our problem starts right there. If you're a Gen Xer, you don't want to deal with emotions. If you're a baby boomer, you've said, emotions have gotten me nowhere. I don't want to deal with them either. If you're a millennial, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but I'm guessing that you're not even thinking about emotions at this point in time. Somehow we have gotten the notion that emotions are a bad thing. That we shouldn't be emotional. We... we uh, we really should ignore that. We, we should deny that. We should be rational. But God made us with emotions because we're made in His image. And He expresses His emotions all over the Bible. And He uses those emotions to motivate us. To mot and they motivate Him as well. That's what emotions are for. So, so somehow emotion, this emotion of shame uh, is something very central and important to who we are, in the, made in the image of God, to our identity. We, we could have a whole relationship, a complete relationship, a perfect relationship, a holy relationship with our God because He made us to reflect His identity. He made us personally worthy. Then came the attack on both our integrity... This is where guilt, the emotion of guilt shows up. And our identity, where shame shows up. 
In Eve's deception and Adam's failure, we've all experienced the emotional results of our sin, guilt and shame. So today, we live in two areas. Now, I, I'm a good Reformed guy, so I don't like areas. I like courts. But it was, uh, it was brought to me uh, uh, this way. I was out walking with Chris Lundgaard, our missionary to Slovakia. Some of you know him. Uh, this past spring out in the desert, we were walking along talking about this. And he said, you know, John, we, we dwell in two courts, the court of heaven and the court of earth. And I went, that's brilliant. That's, that really is brilliant. We dwell in two different courts. The, uh, the first court, of, court, of course, is justice where guilt and innocence are determined. And the second court is one of society, where honor and reputation, where status and value are examined continually. The first court we understand very, very well because our culture is based on behavior. Our integrity is judged by our actions. We are a guilt and justice defined society. Now you need to stop and just think about that for a minute. That is the way we are taught to see the world around us. We are taught that we, if we just keep the rules and the traditions, we will enter heaven itself. You earn what you get. It's called success righteousness. You work smart and good, and you are considered righteous. You earn life and salvation, except when you don't. Lord Jesus reminded us or warned us about this court. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons, children of your Father who is in heaven. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then he says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is pointing out that this group... Uh, uh, that is trying to shape the culture of that, of that time and of that people, uh, have dismissed the very notion of who God is. They've made, a, they've made a, a, a standard that you have to live up to. And if you do, you not only are one of us, but you can, be, you can go to heaven. Think about how that's happening in our culture. That very same process happening in our society. If you just do these things, if you just think this way, you can be one of us and you can go into heaven. Bob Marley in his song, Exodus, says, Open your eyes, look within. Are you satisfied with the way you're living? And the answer is, I mean, he goes on in the song, the answer is obviously no. You're not. But you want to be. You think you are. There's a lie going on here. In the court of heaven, this is Jesus' point, where Lord God's justice is meted out, we are all guilty. 
The law is not relative. It's true. It's, it has integrity because it's the essence of his character, of who he is. He gave the law to provoke us. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? He gave us the law to provoke us, to cry out for deliverance. I cannot save myself. This sin is greater than I am. But in our culture, we're sick of hearing this. We're just absolutely sick of hearing this. We don't want to hear it. Don't preach to me like that. Don't come to my funeral and preach about judgment or about sin or about the need of grace or the need of salvation. Don't do that. I don't want to hear it. Just tell me what a good person I am. So we decided that everybody goes to heaven. It's only right and fair, don't you think? God would never send anybody to hell. We no longer tolerate sinners. We affirm them. The result is that guilt has been wished away. Sigmund Freud, you win. Wished away. Lord God is replaced by a pantheon of worldly gods. And I am no longer whole or right, and the emotion of guilt reminds me of it. The great Buddha sits in his garden, and he says, one hand this way, and the other hand this way, never mind those two dragons, those two angels with flaming swords. Just come on in. You're okay. You're right. And you say, I'm right. Didn't I do every... I didn't do anything wrong. I never did anything wrong. I think I've heard this from one of our leaders. It's an ugly thing. It's really ugly. Then there's the other court. In the court of society, it's value and worth that's scrutinized. Shame is the feeling, I'm not good enough, and neither are you. You're not good enough. And we're outcasts, and we're aliens, and, and we're not, I'm not wanted, and you're not wanted. It's that feeling. Shame is a, 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 of being excluded, defamed, not meeting expectations, weak, without approval. Not publicly correct, which all leads to the outhouse of embarrassment and the butt of jokes. And every night on TV, that's what you hear. If you are marked with a scarlet letter, loser, abuser, bad dude, you might as well kill yourself. You might as well kill yourself. That is exactly the place where the enemy comes in and speaks in your ear and says, you are worthless. Kill yourself. And if you go, no, and your pride, you say, no, I'm not. I'm, I have value. I have value. But, they're, but they, they they're, they're, those people out there, I'll kill them instead. I'll just run over to the church and mow them all down. Murderousness, <laughs> that's a word, comes into our thinking. No place for you. You'll never change. Shame becomes a jacket that can't be taken off. You are condemned with reproach. We're so disappointed in you. 
Worst of all, you can't be vulnerable. You can't expose yourself because if you do, you'll never be trusted again. Just talk about the men who come out of prison who committed even minor offenses or the women. You'll never be forgiven again in our society. Relationships are not repairable. Anguish comes with no compassion. Approval and worth are impossible when you're excluded. As the psalmist says in Psalm 83, verse 17, let them be put to shame, dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. Speaking of those without honor. Shame impugns us all. And, and here's the thing that strikes me. Here's what I'm building to. It's this, that when guilt has been dismissed, when it has been ignored, when guilt is not dealt with, shame comes rushing in to expose your false gods and your false identity. It comes in to the vacuum of, of, of the lack of integrity and it shows the shattered identity. It reveals it. And it can't be hidden. Sorry, Freud. It didn't quite work out the way you thought. Here's my working definition of shame. The feeling of not good enough by my standard or someone else's standard or in particular God's standard. It's the emotion that keeps me from being honest about my struggles with sin or, or my particular sins, my besetting sins. When shame is ignored, we become isolated. We want to hide. Our worth is diminished. And here's something I hadn't thought about. When both guilt and shame are dismissed, are not addressed, something actually terrible happens. And I don't think we, we, know, we, we understand it at all. The word that the Bible uses is remorse. We misuse this word. We say, well, you know, he's sorry, but I don't think he's remorseful. No, that's wrong. That's not the, that's not the word. The word in the Bible is, he's, you know, we're, we're not sure he, he's come to godly sorrow and repentance. Remorse is Latin word, means to gnaw, needs to be eaten up. It, remorse is that thing that begins to sink into your bones, into the very core of your being, and it's eating you up in anguish. It's a terrible thing. Uh, the anguish of utter wickedness. Remorse raises our fears, insecurity, sense of exclusion, and it will motivate you to death. That's what it's intended to do. It will either motivate you. I mean, here, this, God gave us remorse. This is another piece of the emotion that's coming out of our failure to deal with guilt and shame. And he's waving this big, huge flag, and he's saying, this is the last moment. And I'm trying to drive you to the point where you will die to yourself and take hold of Christ. Where you'll take hold of life instead of death. Because that's where you're going. There's a lot of remorse. And I think it explains a lot of what's going on. But nobody is talking about it. In the court of heaven, 
skipped a page. Sorry, not quite ready for that yet. <laughs> That's not right either. So where is page number five? Three, four, five. <laughs> when identity is under attack, it's flagged by the emotion of shame. Okay? So you should see shame, or you should think about shame, as something that God is doing in your life. We, we, we are being warned by shame. That sin is getting the best of us. That we can't cover ourselves with fig leaves. Shame requires a person of prestige to reverse it and to cover us. Let me say that again. Shame, something God gave you, but He didn't leave you in it. But it requires a person of prestige to come and cover you or to put you back into position. My father, those two young men. Or a couple that came to me for counseling. Gloria and Al. Gloria and Al have told me numerous times, tell our story. True people, real names. They came to me for marriage counseling, but I saw within the first or second meeting with them that the problem wasn't between the two of them. Al loved his wife dearly, but she was dealing with something very profound, very difficult, and he was trying to help her, and he couldn't help her. She was in this, in a sense, on her own, but it was affecting deeply their marriage and their children. And, and as time went by, and as she trusted me, she began to devolve, devolve what devolved it? You know, revolve. You know, tell me. What, what was going on in her life? She'd grown up with an abusive father. He had physically, sexually, emotionally, verbally abused her through her entire life. And when she got married, and, and she found a, a man who loved her uh, and, care, and was caring for her, she went back to her father to confront him with this, and he berated her to such a point that he caused her to have an epileptic fit. He called her every name in the book. He called her every lousy, filthy name he could think of and blamed her completely for everything that had happened. And she was sickened by it. And I had, at that moment, no idea what to do. I, I could deal with guilt. I knew how to deal with guilt. I knew how the cross dealt with guilt. I didn't know what to do here. And I, and I was praying and thinking about it. And it was this time of year in October up in, up in the Seattle area. And, and uh, we had a bunch of huge pumpkins outside our house, uh, uh, you know, ready for the fall fest and so on. And all of a sudden, it just came to me. I went outside. I picked up a huge pumpkin, pumpkin one of, like this big. And I came in, and I put it in Gloria's lap, and I said, Gloria, that's what you've been carrying around, a big, ugly pumpkin of shame. What are you going to do with it? And she stood up, and she said, I want to smash it. And I said, go ahead. And she went outside, and she smashed the pumpkin. And she came back in and sat down, and I said, how do you feel? She said, I feel a lot better. I said, what are you going to do now? She said, I know exactly what I'm going to do. She said, and, I, and she said, I'm going to write my dad an indictment 
and then I'm going to pick. Is that me? Uh, she said, would you read it? And I said, yes, I will. Over the next week, she wrote out an indictment against her father, and she went detail by detail from her earliest memories right up to the present. And she accused him of every specific thing that she could verify. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and so she, and then she brought it to me to read. It was a very difficult thing to read. Horrible thing to read. But at the end, she said, Father, I forgive you. I forgive you because not only do I know that Christ has paid for your sins and my sins, but Christ has come and not left me with those sins. I am willing to carry your offense. I, I will carry the wounds of what you have done to me. But my Lord Jesus Christ has come and covered my sins has covered your sin and has removed my shame as far as the east is from the west. It was a beautiful statement of what Christ had done for her. Well, she took it to her father. She sent it to her father. And he went ballistic. He went absolutely ballistic. And he began to rant and rave around the house. And his wife, her mother, Gloria's mother, for the very first time recognized, realized what had happened. She'd been in denial all these years. She called the police. The police came and arrested him. He went to trial. He went to prison. But this isn't about justice. This is about Gloria recognizing the power of the cross, the power of the gospel, the power of the blood of Christ that washes, that blots away our sins and sets us free to live. Gloria, what a wonderful name, right? <laughs> I've often, I told her that. I said, Gloria, you have the right name. God has glorified you. And you have glorified him. God's promise is, is just exactly this. I mean, you think about Abram, uh, that he would give him a new identity. That was his, his promise to him. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. I am giving you a new identity that I may make covenant with you. God changed Abraham. God kept the promise on both sides of the sacrifice. I, I, will keep the, I will make the blood sacrifice that will cover your shame. I will sprinkle my blood on the, uh, this, the blood of these animals that are before you. I will sprinkle them on the mercy seat so that they, your sins cannot be seen, cannot be read any longer. And I will keep the oath that restores my integrity. I will be your God and you will be my people. No God of mankind or nature can make such a promise. Only God Almighty, the covenant-making and keeping God. And the psalmist recognizes the same psalm I read a minute ago, only now the verse says, Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Lord God made us so shame would motivate us to faith in His promise to make us new people, give us new identities. The emotion of guilt drives us to seek the justifier of our broken integrity. The emotion of shame drives us to seek the reversal of our status and the restoration, the renewal of our souls. The heavy hammer of remorse drives us to find peace and life 
Where do I find this honor and restoration? Who is the person of prestige who can cover my shame? We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you, do you see what happened here? He entered both courts. That cross was lifted up between the court of heaven and the court of earth. And he went into both courts. Shame, now I'm over here, now where, I'm, where I was, in the court of heaven, he just Christ justified God's honor by paying the ransom price of our sin. He kept his oath and took the wrath of God's judgment. His forgiveness is once and for all time. The righteous for the unrighteous that we might be made the righteousness of him. His righteousness imputed to us sets us free from judgment forever sets us free from judgment forever. You will never be more justified than the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ and His promise. The moment you accepted Him as Lord and Savior. The moment you rested in His work on your behalf. You will never be more righteous than that moment. In the court of the community, he was fully embarrassed when he took upon himself your shame, the shame of our sin. He was exposed. He was made completely vulnerable, naked and ashamed. His value, the psalmist says, was not that of a worm. He was marred body and soul, Isaiah says. When he declared it is finished, he wrapped us up in his identity forever having, as Paul said, blotted out the record of our sins. They're covered. Or as John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he's the kavod, the atonement for our sins. Jesus clothes us uh, with holiness and grants the restoration of our souls. We now bear his identity forever. When I was writing this sermon and thinking about this, I started weeping. I started weeping because all of a sudden I'm seeing Christ between heaven and earth entering both courts on my behalf. My name written on the palm of his hands. Your, hand, your name's written on the palm of his hands. And he looks from the cross to me. And he says, I know you've struggled with your identity all your life. But I have taken your shame and you have my approval. You have my honor. I give it to you. I've never thought about that before. Jesus honored me. He honored you, his bride, at the cross. And that's what Paul means when he says uh, to, to the Colossians in that same passage, he, uh, uh, by making known the riches of our glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ honors us. 
What, what is glory if it's not honor? We say that we live to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to delight in Him. Well, He is delighting in us. He's honoring us. And because He has honored us, because Paul says He's glorified us, His people, we glorify Him and honor Him. That's powerful stuff. Then in the court of heaven, uh, the Father issues His decree. By your union of faith in my Son, you become my adopted children. Do you see how these two courts are working together? To glorify Christ and us in our union with Him? The blessings of an inheritance is ours. His inheritance is ours. My brothers and sisters, do you see your pumpkin being smashed here? Christ the Lord God has restored your identity as His bride. Your Father in heaven has given you the place of honor as His children, inheritors of His Son. Shame is a powerful and good emotion. It's driving us to the cross where the person of prestige has put us back into the place of honor. Could this great news change the way that you see your enemies? Could this great news change the way you think about your children or about your wife or your husband? Could this great news revitalize you in a world that's dark, in its shame? Could, could, could you see yourself as a person of prestige, bringing healing and restoration? We've been given this love that that we might cover the nakedness, that we might invite the outcast, that we might renew the joy of those who are desperate. My prayer for you is, may the Lord grant you, may He grant you His love. May He grant you the fullness of the identity that is yours in Christ, that restores you. Amen.